Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, November the 26th. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Jan Fran. Hey, Jan. Hello. Today on The Briefing, we're going to explain the Centrelink robo-debt settlement. It sounds like it could be a really great thing, but people just feel like, I don't know, they feel a bit dudded. Why $1.2 billion is not as good as it sounds. Let's hit the big news of the day first. Some great news for the family and friends of an Australian academic jailed in Iran for more than 800 days. She has been released in a prisoner swap. Yeah, we're talking about 33-year-old Kylie Moore Gilbert. She was arrested after an academic conference in Iran in 2018. Uh, We actually spoke to her colleague and friend, Dr. Jessie Moritz, back in August. Here she is explaining what happened to Kylie. One of her interviewees or perhaps a fellow conference attendee, they didn't like the questions that she was asking and so they reported her to the IRGC and the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Yeah, after that she was convicted of espionage in a secret trial. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Uh, There's no transparency here. No evidence of any spying has ever really been made public and she and her family of friends have always denied the charges. Yeah, and when we spoke about it back in August, it was still looking really grim. Mm. Um, There wasn't a a lot of hope, but it seems like there must have been some work going on behind the scenes. Uh, Iranian state TV is reporting overnight that Kylie was traded for three Iranians being held by Australia. Uh, they've aired footage of Kylie sitting in what appears to be a room at Tehran Airport. Yeah, I'm sure we'll hear more about this story in the coming days. We have reached out to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for more information, but we're yet to hear back. And Abdul Nassar Ben Bricker, one of Australia's most notorious terrorists, has been stripped of his Australian citizenship. He's the first individual to have lost his citizenship on shore under the terrorism-related provisions of the Australian Citizenship Act. And given Ben Breaker no longer holds Australian citizenship, uh, he's granted an ex-citizen visa. That was the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, there confirming that Ben Breaker is the first person to lose his Australian citizenship while actually on Australian soil. So this is under controversial terror laws passed last year. Yeah, I think most people knew about these laws as stopping people coming back from the fight with IS in Syria and Iraq. So that's why it's a big deal that this person has been stripped of their Australian citizenship here on Australian soil. Uh, He was arrested in 2005, convicted of planning attacks in Sydney and Melbourne, and was due to be released from a Victorian prison this month. However, the government is trying to keep him behind bars. Yes, and they can do that uh, under a Commonwealth law. People convicted of terror offences can actually be held in detention For up to three years after their sentence finishes, what needs to happen is a state Supreme Court has to approve a request from the Home Affairs Minister. So that's what's currently in the works. And Meghan Markle has revealed that she had a miscarriage earlier this year. Yeah, in a New York Times uh, op-ed, the 39-year-old wrote about losing her second baby while she was holding her baby Archie back in July. Yeah, she wrote about how common it is uh, and how talking about it remains taboo and quote-unquote riddled with unwanted shame and perpetuating a cycle of solitary mourning. Sad. Yeah, like the prevalence of this is crazy. One in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. And yeah, often you don't hear about it because it's so sad for the people involved. Yeah, I like that she's taking control of her narrative in so many ways. I mean, her and Harry left the royal family, Mm. well, stepped down from official duties last year. And I thought, well, I wonder what they're going to do. Are they going to go private? Are they going to, you know, play to the media? And they seem to really be aiming to sort of just take control over their relationship, their story, their narrative, how they're perceived in the world. 
Good luck to them, I say. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how the Netflix series goes about them. I also noticed recently she was forced to admit that she helped uh, the authors of the book Finding Freedom. So she she is controlling her narrative. She's mm. um, she's speaking to people and getting the message out that, that she wants to. And I think the message about miscarriages is a good one. A lot of women around the world will be going, thank you. I, relate, I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. And the area goes to Archie Roach. Yeah, Archie Roach, Sampa and Tame Impala have dominated the unusual 2020 Aria Awards. The show must go on. Even though there was no audience for hosts Delta Goodrum and Joel Creasy and only a few artists in the Sydney crowd, many chose to tune in on Zoom instead, which I wasn't there on Zoom or in real life, but I can probably guarantee Zoom. Not the same. <laughs> um, Hopefully they didn't mute the mics. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully there, there weren't any tech issues. But most of the performances, like the ones from Billie Eilish, Sia and Sam Smith, were pre-recorded, so that solves that issue. Well, yeah, I, I'll take any performance from Billie Eilish or Sia. Pretty amazing. Um, Tame Impala won five arias, three in the major categories. Um, their fourth studio album, The Slow Rush, which is awesome, by the way, deserved winner of Album of the Year. They also got Best Rock Album and Best Group. Yeah, it's a slightly mournful, moody album all about growing up. I yeah. really dig it. I've had it on repeat for a while oh, now. Really? Yeah, yeah, fully, yeah. Archie Roach was inducted into the Hall of Fame as well. He took home Male Artist of the Year and Sampa became the first rapper to win Best Female Artist. Amazing. All right, Jan, let's talk robo Dad. Last week there was some big news about robo-debt. Victims of the government's robo-debt scheme will receive compensation following the country's biggest settlement in class action history. More than a billion dollars. In the largest class action payout in the country. For a staggering $1.2 billion. So as you could hear there, the big headline was that the class action was settled and that a total of $1.2 billion was given back to victims. Yeah, but so many of those victims are not happy with the settlement. So why is that? Yeah, on today's briefing, you'll find out that when you drill down to the detail of that $1.2 billion, it's not as good as it sounds. To call it $1.2 billion overall, that's the, that's the wrong way of looking at it. You know, in the end, it, it just comes down to the $112 million, which is basically interest on the money, which is interest they would have paid anyway. So, you know, it's basically a bit of a non-result. That's Ken O'Shea there. He was part of the class action. Before we explain why he and so many other people are not happy with the settlement, just a quick recap on what the robo-debt scandal is. Yeah, so it started in 2016 and basically Centrelink introduced an automated process that wrongly calculated hundreds of millions of dollars of Centrelink debt for people who, in many cases, were really vulnerable. Some say it actually led their loved ones to take their own lives. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of Australians were impacted by this in so many ways, so much so that in 2019 they banded together and they sued the government in a class action. And that is the $1.2 billion payment that we keep hearing about. Except, as Ken just said, the settlement part of that figure is actually only $112 million. Yeah, that's right. That was the additional amount of money that the government agreed to pay to compensate the 400,000 people that joined the class action. So when you work it out, that's really $280 each minus the legal fees. 
Yeah, so if only 112 million was a settlement, what about the other 1.1 billion, Jan? Well, that is the question. 721 million was already actually announced back in June. That's the debts that will be repaid. And the additional 400 million, they're just alleged debts that the government is dropping. Yeah, so let's find out what Kath Madrick thinks about this settlement. Her 22-year-old son, Jared, took his own life in May last year after what Kath says was a $2,000 Centrelink debt. Jared was already, he, he lost his job, he had no income, um, he'd broken up with his girlfriend, so he was already in a, a you know, a bit of a, a depressed state. And then because he, he was on the phone that day with Centrelink because they'd rejected his claim and he was worried about getting paid, and then he came out and told me about the debt. Um, from then on in, he'd become inconsolable. It just put him into a, a dark place and... Um, you know, two and a half hours later, he never come home. <laughs> so devastating. What What do you think about that process was mishandled by Centrelink? I think the whole the whole thing is mishandled by Centrelink. I think the automated system is not a way to deal with vulnerable people for starters. They don't ask questions about mental health when you're applying for Centrelink. And both departments don't talk to each other, which is just unacceptable for a, a department that's dealing with vulnerable people. You know, the compliance office should be speaking to the other part of Centrelink. I don't know who they are, but there should be notes on the file um, stating, you know, if people are in a situation where they can't pay debts back or whether they put it on hold or and and they should be double-checking because, as we know, they, they haven't substantiated the debts before chasing people. What has this process been like for you, um, particularly after your son took his own life, what were the next few months and years like, particularly in trying to deal with Centrelink on this issue? It's been horrific, actually. It's, um, you know, I'm still going through um, freedom of information. Um, you know, they basically you know, ask for everything and then they basically give me parts of information and then I go back to them and, and that's been going on um, since for 18 months now. Um, it's stressful, yeah, it is stressful trying to get to the bottom of things because obviously I lay awake and, you know, things like they say to me they never called Jared when Jared had told me they had and told him that he, they, he wasn't going to get paid. So, and then they tell me that on the 28th, of May, he found about about the debt, but he never mentions it in the phone calls on the 30th. It, it just, none of it made sense. So to me, that then uh, makes me distrust what they're telling me. What do you think of the settlement? For the amount of stress that this, this system has caused and the way they've ramped it up, and, and as we know, they've put pressure on staff, and I, I just don't think it's really acceptable, to be honest. It's a good win. Any win against the government is good. And, you know, congratulations to Gordon Legal and Bill Shorten, because I know Bill Shorten um, works very hard on this. But, um, you know, for, for all that, there's many, many out there that are disappointed. So nowhere near enough, you reckon? Nowhere near enough. When Scott Morrison apologised for the harm caused by this in June, what did that mean for you? I didn't feel it was an apology, to be honest. I would apologise to any hurt or harm in, in the way that the government has, has dealt with that issue and to anyone else who's find themselves in those situations. And where there are lessons to be learned here, they will be learned. I would apologise is not an apology. That, that is, I would apologise. That's To me, it's not an, an apology. Um, it, ma- it made me kind of angry. It's a, another avoidance by them, in a way, by saying I would apologise to any hurt or harm. 
uh, it's not really accepting that there is hurt and harm. And and as we know, they're denying that suicides uh, aren't directly linked to mm. this, um, which is insulting. And sometimes I just, you know, I want to get in front of them and say to them, "How? tell me how you know my son better than I do. That was Kath Madrick talking about her son Jared's tragic robodebt story. Yeah, and that's just one story in so many others. Lindsay Jackson is someone who's also disappointed by the settlement. She's actually been sticking up for a lot of victims. She started a site called notmydebt.com.au and she says that over 1,000 people have shared their stories on her site. Lindsay, thanks for joining us. How are people that use your site reacting to the settlement? They're actually pretty disappointed. I mean, it sounds like it could be a really great thing, um, but people just feel like, I don't know, they feel a bit dudded. Um, It's a small amount of compensation when you divide it by the number of people that have been affected. Um, People jump through hoops to get all of the paperwork and give Centrelink everything that they were asking for. And at the end of the day, it's the program's been proven to be illegal, which is what we've all been saying for the last four years. So there's actually a lot of frustration. Yeah, I mean, you've been following this from the beginning. You've been advocating for victims Um, Some of their stories have been absolutely horrendous, really painful. What do you think would have been the ideal outcome here for the victims of robo-debt? Short of governments, any government, because this isn't a political issue, this is an administrative issue, and this is about how governments respond to citizens and respond to people pointing, experts pointing out things that are wrong, legal experts, technology experts. To have a process where people are just ignored from the start um, and dismissed as troublemakers and activists is is really problematic. Um, So, you know, anything that's satisfying over what people have been through over the last four years is really difficult. Um, other than, you know, the, the existing programs that are in train that are affecting people in a similar way, um, really looking at those and, and putting a stop to some of those and then never letting this happen again. Um, you've got a lot of people on a lot of massive salaries that sat in a lot of meetings overseeing the design and the implementation of this. Um, it's easy for people to kind of dismiss it as a technical thing. There was AI uh, or there was data matching and kind of hand wave that away. But people sat around the table, people designed this, they they ignored good advice, they ignored legal advice. From my standards of how I conduct myself as a business owner and as a as a human, I, I, I think it is absolutely unacceptable that anyone still has their job, let alone was promoted over this. And I think it's really troubling. Lindsay Jackson, their victims advocate and creator of the website, notmydebt.com.au. Let's find out more about the point of accountability that Lindsay brings up there for the ministers involved. Joel Townsend is a program manager at Legal Aid Victoria. Uh, they have driven a lot of the momentum in this fight against robo-debt. Joel, thanks for joining us. If this class action had actually gone to the federal court, uh, there could have been an opportunity there to hold these ministers to account. Do you think that by settling the legal team here has squandered that opportunity? Well, I hope that we continue to have uh, public discussion um, context where we can scrutinise the question of what government knew about the problems with this scheme in terms of its lawfulness and um, in terms of its level of fairness. I hope that we can continue to scrutinise those questions and continue to ask questions about who knew who knew what and when. Running a, a class action in the end... Um, as I say, very, very complex set of questions, very wide range of experiences and 
it is the responsibility of the people running the class section to think about what the best deal is they can get for the members of that class. Now, that will be unsatisfactory for some people who um, do want to see uh, ministers question vigorously about this. Um, and for them, I guess it is going to mean that they're going to need to wait for another day in another context to to get to the bottom of what has happened. Now, let's get practical for a second, Joel, because there's lots of people listening who, who might be owed money. Um, so of the $720 million that was agreed to be paid back, has that already started hitting people's accounts? And what about people who've still got agreements to pay this money back. Will they all be part of this $400 million that um, is, is not going to be collected anymore? So, first of all, definitely there have been repayments made. We've had clients who have um, had some payments returned to them. So that's something that's at least uh, a positive out of all of this. Um, in terms of the waiver of debts, I guess our anxiety is partly about people who maybe have paid money or are anxious about um, debts which have been raised against them but are not in a position to get the assurance from Centrelink that they need. So people, for example, who are cognitively impaired and find it really difficult to engage with Centrelink, people who have moved um, and uh, are no longer contactable by Centrelink, there's going to be a whole group of people who are properly owed either an assurance that a debt doesn't owe or the actual repayment of money who, who who don't get it because time has passed and they're no longer able to be contactable. So, yeah, th- th- there will be some hard cases. So is it clear who's getting paid back and, and whose debts are getting waived and, and whose aren't? Is is everyone who's who's had debts raised by this program not having to pay them anymore, even if they were halfway through their payments, or is it only a certain subsection where... They only use the income averaging as the only data point for the debt that was raised. What's the deal there? So as I understand it, it's it's people who for whom income averaging was the key underlying component of the of the debt raising um, are having debts paid back or, or waived. It's only as I understand it, it's only if government has, you know, some other proper basis for raising a debt that they're entitled to continue to assert the debt. So it should it should be everyone. And certainly we would say if you've had a debt raised or you've had a debt collected and you're not seeing a repayment from government, then you absolutely should be seeking advice about that because there is no reason why, in our view, government should be holding on to that debt or holding on to that money. Joel Townsend from Victorian Legal Aid there. And it's still unclear, I think, for a lot of people what might happen to their debts and repayments. Yeah, as Joel said, you can seek advice. Uh, If you're looking for that help, you can go to legal aid in your state or your nearest community legal centre. We did reach out to Gordon Legal, who ran the class action and agreed to the settlement with the government. Uh, We wanted to interview them on the podcast, but they weren't able to comment at this time. Yeah, and look, if Kat's story about her son brought up any issues for you, you know, it's a very emotional story, intense, please call Lifeline for support, 13 Eleven fourteen. they're always available to you. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to look at the background of the Nazi symbol that sparked the Pete Evans downfall. A Podcast One production.